Well, hey, welcome to First Church. Hope you guys are doing all right. If you're new, we are one church that meets in more than one location. So this morning, family out of Stone Canyon, there's others who join us online. So if you would put your hands together, welcome them into our time of study here today. My name's Chad. We're just so glad that you're with us. And a few years ago, my wife, Alice, and I got to go out to eat with some friends. And it was a large group of people. So we went to this restaurant. And the group was so big, we didn't get to sit beside one another. Alice and I didn't. She actually sat across from me. And that was fine. We had a good time. But then the waiter came, and he asked, how do I need to divide up the check? And so I pointed at Allison and said what I said a dozen times before, we're together. And the waiter looked at me and looked at her and goes, Really? With this shocked look on his face. I was like, what's that supposed to mean? But I didn't say that. And I was like, yeah, we're together. He's like, oh, okay. And then he asked how the rest of the check should be divided up, and he left. And I turned to my buddy sitting beside me. I was like, that was kind of rude, wasn't it? And my friend goes, well, you know, you can kind of get where he's coming from. And I'm like, thanks, man. Appreciate that a whole lot. And I get it. Probably if you had to pick Alice and I out of a crowd, you probably wouldn't put us together as a couple because we're very different. She's a lot better looking than me. I know that. She's way out of my league, and I'm cool with that. Uh, But not only that, in so many different areas, we are total opposites. And those those of you guys who know us, you know that to be true. We're different, and that's okay. I actually like it that way because I think we balance each other out. And if I was married to somebody just like me, that would be miserable. I would hate that. I'm glad that she's different from me. My mom always says it takes all kinds to make the world go round. And I know what she means by that. You've probably heard that saying before as well. It just means if we were all the same, if we were all alike, the world would be a pretty boring place. And I bet even in this room and out at Stone Canyon, those watching online, there's a lot of different interests represented. And so let's put that to the test for a second. If I were to put up here a couple of pictures, a picture of a dog and a cat, and I were to ask you, if, are you a dog person or a cat person? I wonder how you would vote. So let me just see. How many of you guys would consider yourself to be dog people? Let me hear you. All right. Wow. A whole lot of people. How many of you would say that you're cat people? I'll, I'll pray for you folks, okay? There's just a few of you. But you can definitely tell we have different interests in the room. How about this? If I were to ask if you had the chance to go anywhere on vacation, either to some beach or the mountains, which one would you pick, the beach or the mountains? How many guys would pick to go on vacation to the beach? Okay, how many would pick the mountains? Wow. I think the mountains won in the earlier service. I think it was the beach. That's pretty cool. Okay, now I know in life we have people who are morning people and those who are night people. So if I were to put these two pictures up on the screen, which best describes you? Are you a morning person or a night owl? How many morning people do we have? Good number. All right. What about night owls? Hey, I have come to discover in life there are two types of people, those who love mornings and those who hate the people who love mornings. Only two types of people. Okay, how about these next two pictures here? If I were to ask you to pick your favorite TV station to watch, would you pick ESPN or HGTV? How many of you guys would pick ESPN? Good number, okay. How many of you would pick HGTV? About even, okay. Got one more, and I know we have different interests when it comes to this in the room. Two more pictures. Would you pick OU or OSU? Let me hear you. How many OU fans do we have here today? Wow, that is incredible. How many OSU fans? All right, probably more OU fans in the service. And how many of you guys would cheer for another team besides these two? 
I would, yeah. Go Cats. I would cheer for Kentucky, definitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know we have other fans in the room, TU, Arkansas, LSU. I would say Kansas, but that might cause a fight. Is that too soon? Is that too soon? All right, okay. I'll stop and move on. We definitely have different interests in the room here today. But you know what? There's one interest that we all have in common, one interest that we all share, one interest that unites us all, and it's this, self-interest. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I'm talking about pursuing your own personal wants, your own personal desires, your own self-interest at all costs. Now, let me clarify. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a positive self-image. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself. There's nothing wrong with being self-aware. In fact, the Bible tells us how to do all those things in a healthy, a spiritually healthy way. But what I'm talking about is pursuing your own personal interest at all costs, and it doesn't matter who you hurt or who you have to run over in order to accomplish that. And this is something that I think from the time we're little kids that we struggle with, because let's face it, most little kids, they know how to be takers. That just almost comes natural. But being givers, that's a whole different story. You parents in the room here today, I bet that none of you ever sat down your child and said, okay now, little Johnny, I want to teach you a word, and the word that I want to teach you is the word mine. Now, say it with me real slow, be very clear, mine, come on now, mine, say it with me. And then once little Johnny said it, he said, okay, the next time another little kid wants to play with one of your toys, you snatch it away from them and you say mine. None of us taught our kids to do that, but... They just kind of knew, didn't they? Probably it's because it's what they've seen in the world around them. Probably it's because we live in a world that's been cursed by sin. What's a lot harder to teach is sharing, isn't it? We live in a world today that is bought in to the lie, that is believed this lie, that the more we have, the happier we'll be. The more we have, the more we take, the more we get, the happier will be. And I know that on the surface when you read that, you're probably thinking, well, we know that's not true and that's not healthy, but practically speaking, that's how we often live. We believe the more power, the more money, the more influence, the more prestige, the more respect, the more responsibility, the more whatever we get, the happier we will be. And so... We pursue our own self-interest at all cost. But Jesus comes along teaching us something very different, teaching us the exact opposite. Jesus comes along and he teaches us this. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that word blessed that Jesus uses there can actually be translated content or satisfied. It can even be translated happy. You want to live a content life? You want to live a satisfied life? You want to live a happy life? Be a giver rather than a taker. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Jesus says if you want to live a full, content, and happy life, here's the secret. This is what it is. The more you give the better life will become, the better life gets. Now, that sounds very different from what the world tells us. That's 
That sounds a little odd to some of us even. Because getting sounds a whole lot more fun than getting, doesn't it? I mean, getting sounds a whole lot more fun than giving, doesn't it? It's a lot more fun to get than it is to give. But Jesus says, model your life after me. And just as I lay down my life for you, as you lay down your life for others, as you give your life away out of love for God and love for other people, the better life will be, the better life you will live. But if you want to destroy your life, wreck your life, here's how you do it. Live selfishly. Do that and you'll wreck your life. Because Jesus knows what the Bible warns over and over and over again. Unchecked self-interest is always, always destructive. Like I said, the Bible gives us this warning over and over again. Look what the book of James says. It says in James 3.16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You want your life to be full of disorder? You want your life to be overtaken by evil? This is how you do it. Pursue selfish ambition at all costs. What about what the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 16? It says, the higher you lift up yourself in pride, the harder you will fall in disgrace. You want to just continue to lift yourself up, lift up your own selfish interest at all costs? The harder you will fall. And that's why Jesus came, because he knew we had believed the lie that this world has sold to us, that the more we get, the more we take, the happier we will be in Jesus. That isn't true. He came to reorient us. He came to reshape our lives to let us know that the better life is a life where we give ourselves away. And that's what his kingdom is all about. See, we've been in this series for the past few weeks, which we're calling Majnik. And if you're new here, you're probably wondering, what does this word Majnik mean? But if you've been here every week, you're probably tired of me saying it. Majnik is actually, it's pretty simple. It's just the word kingdom backwards. Because Jesus invites us to be part of a kingdom. A kingdom that's backwards. A kingdom that's upside down. A kingdom that's inside out. A kingdom that's radically different from what we've always known. A kingdom that's countercultural. Jesus invites us to be part of his backwards kingdom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, he teaches us how to pray. And in his model prayer, he gives us this line. We've looked at it every week in this series. He says that we are to pray, your kingdom come, your Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, we want heaven to come to earth. God, we want your kingdom to come here. We want up there to come down here. We want your will to be done on earth in our lives, in our hearts, as it is done in heaven. And there's a reason why we should want heaven to come to earth. Because heaven is a place where there is no prejudice. There is no hatred. Heaven is a place where there is no abuse, no emptiness. Heaven is a place where everyone feels loved and valued. Heaven is a place where God's peace and his joy overflow. And I don't know about you, but I want to live in a kingdom like that. I want to live a life like that. And Jesus says, you don't have to wait until you die to experience that life. That life, that kingdom life can start to invade your present. It can start to invade your life right now. 
And that's why Jesus goes on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. In the present tense, Jesus says, right now, God will give you everything you need if you seek his kingdom. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. I've pointed this out every single week because I want to be clear about this. Jesus doesn't say that if you seek God's kingdom first, that God will give you everything you want in life. He also doesn't say that God will make your life easier. That's not what he says. He says he will give you everything you need, meaning you will continue to live in this life that's been messed up and corrupted by the curse of sin. You will continue to live with darkness all around you, but he will give you light in the midst of that darkness. He will replace your hurt with healing. He will replace your apathy with purpose. He will replace your emptiness with love. He will give you what your soul is longing for. You will experience joy, peace, and healing as it is found in heaven. And so in this series, we're looking at how to live that kingdom-shaped life. And there's no better place to find out what that kingdom life looks like than the Sermon on the Mount. This first sermon that we have recorded of Jesus. And it's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're looking at this sermon all throughout this series. And as you really pay attention to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, at first glance, what he says is going to sound awkward and different and backwards because it's not what we're used to hearing. But Jesus knows we need to be rewired. Jesus knows we need to be reoriented. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the lies that this world has tried to sell us. And one of the lies that he confronts is the one that we mentioned just a second ago, this myth that the more we have, the happier we'll be. And so let's see how Jesus confronts this myth, this lie, in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus knows us pretty well. He created us, and he knows what we have the tendency to do. He knows we have the tendency to stockpile, to accumulate stuff, hoping that the stuff that we stockpile will bring us happiness, will bring us eventual security, will give us some type of purpose and meaning to life. And Jesus looks at us and he says, stop doing that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, I really like that phrase there, do not store up. It can also be translated, do not hoard up. And Jesus says this in the present ongoing tense, meaning he is literally saying to his first century listeners, stop storing up. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, listen, I know what you guys are doing. I know how you're living right now. I know your hearts. I know what's really going on. Right now, as I'm teaching you, you guys are storing up stuff, hoping that that stuff will bring you happiness, hoping that that stuff will give you security, hoping that that stuff will give you purpose, hoping that that stuff will bring value to your life. And Jesus has stopped doing it because it's never going to bring you what you think it's going to bring you. It's not going to work. 
Now, what Jesus here isn't saying is Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't save up money or that we shouldn't have a retirement plan or we shouldn't have some type of financial plan for the future. He's not saying that at all. In fact, the Bible tells us we should have all that stuff. In fact, Proverbs 13.22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. In order to leave an inheritance for your children's children, you got a plan, right? You have to have some type of plan in place, and you've got to save money as well. Jesus isn't saying here, and the Bible isn't teaching us that we should shouldn't save up money or have a plan for the future. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5 eight, it says that the man who doesn't provide for his family doesn't just deny his faith, faith, but he's worse than an infidel. That's not what Jesus is getting at. There's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with having a retirement plan. What Jesus here is getting at is this. Don't find your value in what you have. Our accumulation of stuff or lack thereof doesn't define our worth it doesn't define our value because the stuff that we accumulate here on earth it literally is here one day and gone the very next that's why Jesus refers to the treasures on earth as things that moth and rust destroy so you need to understand who he's speaking to He's speaking to an audience that typically stored their wealth in the form of precious metals and fabrics. And in a day and age when you didn't have, you know, quality safes that were like moisture controlled and humidity controlled, in the day and age when you didn't have banks like we have today and safety deposit boxes and all that kind of stuff, you know where you would store your stuff, your valuables, your fabrics and your precious metals, which is where all your wealth was found? You would store those things in your home. Your homes that had dirt floors and had clay walls. Or you might go buried in the ground somewhere. And what that meant is bugs and moss and rust. Those things were very real threats to your valuables, to your wealth. And what Jesus here is saying is, don't chase after stuff, treasures that can be destroyed, that have the ability to fall apart. Don't, don't chase after treasures that can be stolen and taken away from you. And every time I read Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm reminded of a situation that I found myself in a few years ago. I was asked by a family to go and visit this guy in the hospital. He was dying, and they wanted me to come talk to him. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. So I went to see this guy, met him at the hospital. He and I hit it off right off the bat. We had a great conversation. He told me some things about his life. And right as I was getting ready to leave, he said, Hey, preacher, that's what he called me. He said, Hey, preacher. I want to ask you something. I thought, here it comes. He's going to ask me about following Jesus, or he's going to ask me some theological question, and it'll open the door for us to talk about what he needs to do. And this is what he said to me. He said, hey, would you make sure that my lunchbox collection is taken care of? You heard me right. I said, lunchbox. And I was just like, what? And come to find out, this guy had this huge lunchbox collection of antique collectible lunchboxes. And he stored them in this barn on his property. And he had collected these things for years. I mean, he had hundreds and hundreds of lunchboxes. And he wanted to make sure that his lunchbox collection was taken care of. And there was this one certain family member that he didn't want to have any of his lunchboxes. He wanted to make sure that he didn't get any of those. And he's telling me all this stuff. And I'm listening to this man who is literally dying. And I'm like, you're on your deathbed and you're worried about lunchboxes? Come on, man. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. As he was so concerned about his lunchboxes. And we can laugh at that and shake your heads and say, well, that's just dumb. But sometimes we're not much better. 
Sometimes we live for things that are here one day and gone the next. Guys, markets fluctuate. Theft occurs. Car accidents happen. Business deals go sideways. Relationships go south. Investments bottom out. Unexpected storms hit life. Medical bills mount up. And the list goes on and on and on. What we have today can be gone tomorrow. Can be gone in an instant. And that's why I like how one guy paraphrases Proverbs chapter 23. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. Don't wear yourselves out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the blink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies off into the wild blue yonder. I like how that guy paraphrases that. Because there's nothing wrong with having stuff. But don't let your stuff define you. Don't let your stuff drive you and motivate you. Live for something greater. Live for what's eternal. Because the treasures of this earth will not bring you lasting contentment. They, will, they won't bring you lasting joy. And we all know people who are wealthy, who have everything in the world to live on, but nothing to live for. And Jesus says, don't be like those people. Because if all you have to live for is more, more stuff, then the only way for you to find value in life and to add value to your life is to get more stuff. In fact, our world is full of people who have bought into the myth of more I read a study just the other day where they polled people and they said, how much would be enough? How much money would be enough for you where you would be satisfied? And just about everybody said if they had about 20% more money than what they have right now, then they would be satisfied. And you know what? They've continued to do that study year after year after year. And what they have found out, so same people that they polled once they eventually got their 20% more, guess what? They asked them if they were satisfied and they still wanted more. It wasn't enough. And here's why. Because more is always a moving target. The gap between more and enough is never bridged. Never bridged. If you just chase after more, you're never going to find what you're ultimately looking for. Just scroll through social media and you can look at everybody else's highlight reel and you'll get discontent like that. What you end up doing is you get trapped playing the comparison game. I mentioned OU and OSU a second ago at the beginning of my sermon. Well, I know there's another Oklahoma team that several people in our church cheer for. We've got some alumni from that school here in our church. It's the University of Tulsa. And there's a guy in our church who uh, graduated from TU, and he invites me to go to TU basketball games all the time, and I love it. We always have a good time every time we get to go. And he invited me and our campus minister at Stone Canyon to go with him this past week to watch TU play Memphis. And Memphis was 
was a top 25 team. They were predicted to just blow Tulsa away. And on the way there, I'm thinking, you know, I hope it's a game, but it probably won't be. I mean, Memphis is just going to stomp Tulsa. I knew that. I was hoping it wouldn't be the case, but that's what I honestly thought. And if you guys were there at the game or you watched it on TV or heard about it, you know what happened. Tulsa not only pulled out the upset victory, they ended up beating Memphis, top 25 team, ended up beating Memphis by 40 points. I mean, it was a blowout. It was awesome. It was great. And I loved watching it. Students rushed the court afterwards. Our campus minister at Stone Canyon, he rushed the court with them. You know, he was nuts. I went down there too, but I wasn't as crazy as he was. But still, it was a lot of fun. And after the game was done, we took a picture of us with the scoreboard in the background. There's CJ and me and Bob who takes us to the games. And we try to get the scoreboard in the background because we wanted to remember the score of that game. But with the lighting and stuff, you really can't see what the score was. So I took another picture of the scoreboard up close. You can see it here, Tulsa 80, Memphis 40. And I wasn't the only one taking a picture of the scoreboard. A lot of people were. Why? Because that scoreboard validated the win. It validated the game. And people wanted proof of the win. And here's the thing. It's fine to do that when it comes to sporting events. But this is how a lot of people live their lives. Just keeping score with everyone else, with the people around them. When it comes to their possessions, they're all about keeping score. And I'm going to turn this scoreboard on so it might make a noise, so get prepared for that. No, it wasn't too bad. All right. But anyway, this is how a lot of people live their lives. I'm going to turn the volume down so it doesn't make a whole lot of noise. This is how a lot of people live their lives. They start off and they say, you know, I've got a pretty good house, and I've got a decent car to drive, and got a good job. My life looks pretty good. I'm satisfied. I'm content. But then they start looking around, and they turn on HGTV, and they see shows like Fixer Upper or House Hunters, and they see the homes that everyone else lives in, and they start to realize those homes, they're a lot nicer than my house. Man, I wish I had one of those. And then their buddy gets a new car, and they think, man, man, that car is a lot nicer than mine. There's nothing wrong with my car, but it's just so much nicer. And then they see that their coworker gets the new iPhone. They're like, you know, my phone works fine, but it's got a better camera on it than these new iPhones, and it's got more technology. And they hear about their neighbor down the street that goes on a Disney vacation. And they're like, man, I wish I could go to Disney. How cool would that be? Love to take my kids there. They got a buddy that gets a promotion at work, and they were satisfied with their jobs beforehand, but now it's like, I wish I had their job. Their job is just so much better than mine. And they go through social media and they see all the activities and stuff that everybody else is doing. And they just keep looking at everyone else's life and they think, man, I wish I could have that. And so they try to overcompensate and well I can't buy a new car like my buddy but I'll lease one instead or yeah I can't fix up my house if they can't on fixer upper but I can at least paint my kitchen and maybe I can't get the newest iPhone but I can delete the pictures off my phone have more memory you know I can do a few things to try to keep up but as you try to keep up everyone else around you just keeps getting more and more and more stuff and Jesus says that if this is how you're living your life, you're playing a losing game. You're never going to win at this game. You're looking at the wrong scoreboard. Jesus says if this is how you're living your life, 
you're headed for disappointment. You're headed for failure. You're headed for depression. You're headed for destruction. Because if more defines you, it will end up destroying you. If more defines you, it will end up eventually destroying you. Yeah, you may have occasional spurts of happiness as you pursue more, but it will rob you of lasting joy because here's the real truth. See, the world tells us this lie. The more we have, the happier we are, but here's the real truth. The more we have, the more we end up wanting because more is a moving target. The gap between more and enough is never bridged. And Jesus says, if you're playing that game, you're gonna lose. And that's why he says, you're looking at the wrong scoreboard. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 20 through 21 of chapter six. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, don't chase after, stra- after treasures that will distract you from living out your true God-given purpose. You're not here to store up treasures on earth that are here one day and gone the next. You're here to use whatever God has given you to bring heaven to earth. That's why you're here, to make an impact on the lives of the people around you, to invade the sadness of earth with the joy of heaven. Everything you have has been given to you on loan by God for you to help bring heaven to earth. And that's why Jesus teaches it's more blessed to give than it is to receive because you can't take all that other stuff with you, but you can take people with you. And you're here to do just that. Now, I know that that phrase, it's more blessed to give than to receive, it's easier said than done, I know. And it's a whole lot more fun, like I said earlier, to get than it is to give, I know. But we all need to ask ourselves today, do we really believe that giving is the better way of life than getting? Because even though it might sound a little backwards, that's God's heart. And that's the essence of his kingdom. God gave up his seat in heaven and came to the earth, died on the cross, paid the penalty that you and I deserve so that we could receive a life that we could never earn. He gave up his very life so we could live. And when you truly capture his heart, you will overflow with generosity because you realize that nothing that you do, nothing you give compares to what he has done for you. And here's the thing. You're gonna get to the point where you realize that nothing you have is really yours anyway. You're just simply managers of stuff that belongs to God. And one day, the stuff that you're now managing will be managed by somebody else. You see, more isn't the secret to contentment. Jesus is the secret to contentment. And until he is the source of your contentment, you will never really be generous because you will serve whatever owns you. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 24. 
Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, if money is your God, if your possessions, if they're your God, your stuff, your popularity, your prestige, your job, any of that stuff, if it's your God, that's what's going to enslave you. That's what you're going to serve. But when Jesus is your Lord, when he's your king, generosity will naturally flow from you. You cannot belong to Jesus and not be generous. Because when Jesus is your life, he defines you, he shapes you, he directs you, he guides you, he's your motivation for life. And you'll realize that you're here for a much greater purpose than just collecting stuff. I'll never forget, I heard a story one time about Wayne Smith who preached for years at Southland Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. Somebody from his church walked up to him and said, "Uh, Brother Smith, if I'm not generous, does that mean that I'm going to go to hell? And Wayne Smith looked at this guy and he said, well, maybe not, but somebody will. You see, there's this expectation of Jesus' followers that we're here for a greater purpose, that we're here to use whatever God has given us to advance his kingdom. We're here to practice radical generosity. And that's why I love this church because I believe we are a generous church. In fact, I don't think that a church that isn't generous, I don't think that's a real church. And I love this place because we teach here the biblical model when it comes to finances of 10, 10, 80. You've probably heard me talk about this before. That God tells us we are to set aside 10% of our income for him. Right off the top, we set aside 10% for him and we give it to the ministry and the work of the church. And then the next 10% we then save. Uh, and we save it for a rainy day. We save for ourselves. And then the other 80% we then spend. We spend throughout life. So 10% we set aside for God. 10% we save. 80% we give. I mean, we, we, we live off of. That is the biblical model that we're given And what I love about this church is not only do we practice that and we know that it is the better way of life, we have a ton of people who say, yeah, I know that the Bible says I'm supposed to set aside a tenth, 10% of my income for God, but they give a lot more than that. You know, a lot of times those people that are giving a lot more than that 10% are not the most wealthy people in our church. But they're people whose treasure is in heaven. And they want to make whatever sacrifices they can in order to advance God's kingdom. And we just want to let you know if you're new here, anytime you give to the ministry of this church, your generosity, it goes for the greater good, for God's greater good. People are fed, people get homes, people get clothes because of your generosity. People hear the gospel for the first time because of your generosity. We go on mission trips, we go throughout the Love 918, and we, we try to impact lives. I mean, right now, our kids are being introduced to Jesus up in our next-gen ministry because of your support. Right now, if you go talk to Nathan, our children's minister, he'll let you know that our children's ministry is busting at the seams. He needs help, by the way. If you want to volunteer with something, go volunteer there. He needs help because we've got tons of kids who are coming, and those kids are hearing about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Because of your generosity, lives are being changed from the youngest to the oldest, and not just in this place, all throughout the 918. That's why I love this church, because we're a generous 
church. And that's the expectation of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. See, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 3 through 4, he says, but when you give, notice he doesn't say if you give. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says it's the expectation that you will give, but when you give, you don't do it for attention. You don't do it to receive praise. You don't do it to get acknowledgement or recognition. You do it because of your love for God and your love for people, so much so you don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing as you give. My papa, my dad's dad, I was very close to him. He died when, after I graduated high school, I was getting ready to go to college. And I remember it, it affected me greatly because, like I said, I was close with him. He was a faithful member and partner in his church. He'd been an elder for years in his church, and he had served in many different capacities. And he loved Jesus. But he hadn't always loved Jesus. In fact, he was pretty wild at one time. I remember he started telling me stories at one point in my life about some of the stuff he used to do before he knew Jesus. I was like, Papa, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, I don't want to know about it. But he'd been kind of wild at one point. Then he met my mamma. She brought him to church. He found Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. So much so that not only was he faithful to church, he raised his three boys in church, one of which was my dad. All three of his boys are still faithful to church, and they're all leaders in their churches. All of his grandkids are still faithful to church. They serve the churches where they attend. And I bring that up not just because my papa brought his family to church, but because he lived like Jesus, especially when it came to generosity. I remember one time visiting him. I was a little kid, and my brother and I came and visited my mom and papa just for a week during the summer, and we went to the grocery store, and on the way back from the grocery store, we stopped by this house, and I thought we'd been to the grocery store to buy groceries for my mom and papa for us for that week, but that wasn't the case. They brought all the groceries, they brought all the groceries that they just purchased into this house. My papa told me that there was a widow living there who didn't have a lot of money, and every week they stopped and bought her food because they knew she needed it. I remember after that week was over, I told my dad about that. My dad said, I had no idea that your papa did that. He didn't tell anybody. He just did it. And at his funeral, I had a man walk up to me, and I knew who this man was. He was the son of a former minister of my papa's church. And this guy walked up to me, and he said, Chad, I want to tell you a story about your papa. I was like, sure, I'd love to hear it. He said, when I was little... So my dad was preaching at your papa's church and he said, I had some real serious health issues and needed some treatment. And he said, honestly, my family couldn't afford it. Preachers didn't make a lot of money in that day. And my parents had no idea what they were going to do. And somehow your papa just knew. My, my dad, this is the guy talking, he said, my dad was a preacher. He said, he never asked for anything, but somehow your papa just knew. And he came up to my dad one day and he said, listen, your boy's going to get whatever treatment he needs. He said, I'll pay for it. If I have to work extra in overtime, I'll pay for it. Your boy's going to get whatever treatment he needs. Don't you worry about it. And I want to let you know something about my papa. He always had a steady job, 
but he was never an extremely wealthy man. Lived in a very small home his entire life. But he was the one who often lived below his means so he could help others. And apparently, my papa paid for that boy to have not just treatments, but doctor visits and all sorts of stuff. And I remember that man looking at me at the funeral home saying, I'm alive today because of your papa's generosity and love. And that man said, my dad, when your papa first offered, said, you can't do that. There's no way that I can ask you to do that. And my papa said, you're not asking. He said, I want to. God has been so generous with me that I can be generous with others. So I turned around, I went and I told my dad that story after the man walked away at the funeral home. I said, Dad, did you know that? My dad had never heard that story in his life. He went and asked his brothers. No one in the family had ever heard that. My papa did that years ago and didn't tell a soul. Because it wasn't about him. It was all about showing people the love of Jesus. Jesus changed him. And when Jesus changes you, generosity flows like a river. And so I just want to ask you today, do you believe that the more we give, the better life gets? Because my papa may have never lived in a huge house, but he lived with a joy and a peace that I don't see a lot in our world today. And you know people like that, and I know other examples as well that I can mention. Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says it's better to give than to receive. He knows that's the only way to live. It doesn't mean that as we're generous that life's going to be perfect, it's going to be easy, that we're going to, in return, get everything we've ever wanted. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying you're going to make eternal difference, and not only will you impact the world, it will impact you. It truly is more blessed to give than to receive. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we had to look at the Sermon on the Mount again and listen to what your son has to tell us. Father, may we not just listen to his words, but Father, may we put them into practice because you know us better than we know ourselves. You create us and you're telling us this is the way to really live. Father, it's my prayer that everybody listening to this message today would live with eternal joy and peace and satisfaction and contentment. But we know the way to do that is to live for your son's, son's backwards kingdom. May that be our goal. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.